search of a, of a baby born a king. Although it is interesting to be able to look at these things and to see the sign of God who controls all of creation set in the heavens. That's no small thing. To recognize that a star appeared. Was it a star or some other heavenly body? We don't know. It's not even really relevant. What matters is that God used the creation that He made and controls to signal where to find the Son of God. God incarnate. God in flesh. God doing all of these things. And these Gentile magi, these men of Persia, of Babylon, interestingly, where Judah had been exiled when God was punishing them, now come to seek the one that God's own people would reject. In the heart of Israel, in the heart of Judah, where kings represent God. Nobody knew there was a baby who was born the king of the Jews. And yet, from a distance, these men, coming from the area, the place of the exile, perhaps this is where they discovered or took hold of the Hebrew Scriptures, once lost in the temple, carried off to Babylon, could they have encountered it in a secular setting and still found the king? God brought them on this journey. It doesn't matter how many there were. It doesn't really matter even if they were from Persia, although that seems pretty clear. What matters is that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. And we see his ID card, so to speak, show up even from his birth. Now they come. They find him. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll read this passage. And then we'll pray and begin our, our time in the Word together. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're going to want to have one because you want to be able to see God's Word for yourself. So just raise your hand if you need one, and Michael will make sure that you, that you have a sword in your hand as we go into battle here. Matthew chapter 2. If you have an NIV, you should have a heading there that says, The Visit of the Magi. Shelly, can I steal your glasses? Matthew chapter 2. Oh, that's so much better. <clears throat> New prescription, and I can't see up close yet. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, notice that first word, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This is about all we get on these guys, right? When King Herod, who was officially king of the Jews, he was the, the, uh, the sub-king under Rome, they put him in place and allowed him to govern in Judea. But 
King Herod heard this, and he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Christ is the Greek translation, the Greek term for Messiah, anointed one of God. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Before we get to what the prophet has written, can we just notice for a moment? I'm supposed to just be reading, not preaching, but I just got to stop. Can we just notice for a moment that the one who called himself king of the Jews, the one who is sitting in the palace in Jerusalem, doesn't even know where Messiah was supposed to be born. He didn't know the scriptures as much as these Gentiles, these outsiders did. These Persians come, and they know the scriptures. In Bethlehem and Judea they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Good guy, Herod. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And that is that. That's all we know about these magi. Let's pray as we begin this time together. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your word. It's so easy for us to forget to thank you for your word, Father. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us. You didn't have to give us a single breath. You created us in perfection and in intimacy with yourself. You gave us everything and we chose our way over your way. All of us. Not one person is clean. And yet, somehow, you are such a God of love and mercy that you not only allowed us to continue to live, but you continue to interact with us to bring us back to yourself. You loved us so much that you even sent your own son <coughs> so that anyone who believes in him wouldn't have to perish. Wouldn't have to die in our sins, as is our natural state. But we could have eternal life by trusting in the one who is king and God and sacrifice. Father, as we open your word today, illuminate it to us by your spirit. Shine a light of understanding on your word, your perfect, eternal word. Soften our hearts. Lord, break us 
make us so painfully aware of our shortcomings and sin, our pride and hypocrisy, that we cannot sit comfortably and listen today. Let our hearts break as we contemplate who Jesus is and what he did for us. Guide us now. And Lord, receive all the glory and honor from this. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So if you're familiar at all with the story, you know that what happens next is that as these magi return by a different route away from Herod, Herod is determined not to worship the one-born king, but to eliminate the one-born king. And so we see in the coming paragraphs that he sends his soldiers into Bethlehem and they slaughter every male child under two years old. Why under two years old? Because they're not in the manger anymore. They're not in the stable. It didn't just happen. In this window, some kid is living in a house in Bethlehem who's going to take my throne. Nobody takes my throne. He wipes them out. It's not surprising for Herod. He had already killed uh, a wife and, and two sons. This guy was known for his treachery. He would do anything to protect his way of life, to protect his own ego, his own reputation. Even sacrificing those that he loves. Even sacrificing innocent children. As we see the story, the whole focus, Matthew's focus, this song's focus, and our focus today, is not on the characters. Not on what's happening in the sky but on the identification of who Jesus is and what that means. Our core reality for today, it's printed for you, it's up on the screen for you. Very simple, but we got to get this. Jesus did what he did because he is who he is. I'm not saying this as double speak. It's not some, some funny thing for us to get in our heads so it sounds clever. But the reality is, Jesus did what he did because he is who he is. Say that with me. Jesus did what he did because he is who he is. Not he was who he was, because he is still alive today. King forever, ceasing never. Amen? Jesus is who he is. But understand this is what we really want to see as we wrap up the whole thing. We can just end the sermon here. Well, we won't, but we could. The identity of Christ drives the activity of Christ. The identity of Christ drives the activity of Christ. This is important for you and I to recognize because even in our own lives, our identity drives our activity. Who we are drives what we do and as christ followers we have the for the first time ever the free will to be able to please god hebrews eleven six 6 says without faith it's impossible to please god 
Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter if you cure cancer and provide water to every child in Africa, it does not matter. You are still unable to please God with anything in your life until you come to faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't say it. Hebrews 11.6 says it. Romans 8 says it. The entire Bible says it. So if you think there is any other path to God besides Jesus Christ, if you think that the Quran can do it, if you think that the teachings of the Buddha can get you there, whatever it is you think, you're wrong. And you cannot call yourself a Christian if you believe that. Not trying to be harsh. I just want to get us all started on the right page. I don't want to offend you. I want to offend everybody. But not me. I want the Word of God to offend us. Because that's an offensive thing. It doesn't matter what you want or I want. It doesn't matter what your way is or some other person out there who seems like such a really good person. But they said they were a Christian. They thanked the Lord Jesus Christ at the Grammys. It has nothing to do with it. There's one way, only one way. We need to know that going in. Jesus did what he did because he is who he is. Now, as we look at that song that we just sang, I, I was listening to some Christmas music. <clears throat> this was a, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, man, we got to preach this song. The funny thing is, for a long time, I was like, do we have to do this song? Because it's just so stupid. It's not Three Kings. We know this isn't, you know, come on. We're just making stuff up. We're singing a song to worship a star. We've totally missed it. I missed it. This song, yes, imag imaginative though it is, is intended and does very well at its intended goal of teaching doctrine. Understanding exactly who Jesus is, that he is king and he is God and he is the sacrifice. Today being our first Sunday of the month, we celebrate, as we will after the, at the conclusion of this message, we celebrate what we call the remembrance celebration or communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, all the same thing. And as we celebrate this, the purpose of it is for us to get our hearts and our minds focused as we remember the price that was paid for our freedom. It's easy at Christmas time to celebrate a cute baby in a manger and have clever pictures of Santa bowing at, at this hay feeder. That's great and wonderful, all these things. I love Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. But it's easy in the process of that to forget that that baby, that child, was more than a child. It wasn't the birth of Christ. It was the coming of Christ. The ever-existent one. God, eternally existent. Colossians says he created everything. Everything that was ever created was created through Christ, for Christ, by Christ, sustained by Christ. Christ is God. Christ is at the heart of everything. He didn't start in Bethlehem. He came to Bethlehem. And he came to Bethlehem for us. Why? To be a sacrifice. Jesus did not come 
primarily to be our example. Many have taught that over the years. That's not valid. I would go so far as to call that heresy. And I don't use that word very lightly. When we teach that Jesus came to be our example, that sends all of us to hell. What that means is, if he's my example, then the way I get to heaven, the way I get to God is to live like Jesus, right? To follow in Jesus' steps. And if I just do everything that Jesus did, and I live just like him, I live that perfect life, then I get to go to heaven. How's that working for you? Raise your hand if you can live, if, not even if you have, if you think that you are capable of living just like Jesus. Anybody? Raise your hand. Come on, be bold. Of course not. That's silly. So the idea that Jesus came primarily to be our example is not only a lie, it is the most damning thing we could possibly hear. All you have to do to get to heaven is to be absolutely perfect and without flaw. Great. We, we fall into that trap when we say, well, I just, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. Great. Because what the Sermon on the Mount did was take all of the law, didn't do away with it, and said you have to keep the law, but more than that, you have to keep the law in every thought of your mind and heart. Perfectly. And if you can do that, if you can not only not break the law, but you can never, ever have a bad thought, ever, Okay. Great. That's not going to work. But Jesus came as God in the flesh, as King and God in sacrifice, to be our propitiation. Write that word down. Propitiation. I didn't give it to Brad, so it's not on your screen. P-R-O-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Did I get them all? I think so. Propitiation. That means the removal by appeasement of God's righteous wrath. That's a hard doctrinal word for us to swallow. Now don't miss what it means. Propitiation is the removal by appeasement of God's righteous wrath. It's not just that it wipes our sins away. It's not just that God says, okay, I'm going to overlook it. It is the appeasement of God's righteous, just deserved wrath. God is outraged at sin. All things that are associated with sin are destined to be destroyed. That remains true today. It will remain true throughout eternity. In the day of the Lord, when Christ returns, when judgment comes, everything that is imperfect, let me say that again in case you missed it, everything that is imperfect will be utterly destroyed. We don't have time to go into all of the scriptures that point to that, but that is the heart and soul of what we see throughout the scripture from beginning to end. Everything that is less than perfection will be utterly and eternally destroyed. Not good news if you're imperfect. Jesus came to be our propitiation. He came to be the one who appeases the wrath of of God. Let's see what that looks like. It starts out with the fact that Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. Without going through a ton of scriptures, I'll just look at a few of them. Let's, um, let's start in 1 Timothy. 
If you're still in Matthew, turn to the right. We're going to go past most of these letters. The letters to Timothy are toward the back. If you get to Hebrews, you went too far. Now we've been recently going through the book of Luke and we see over and over again without the clear proof text, we see story after story, account after account, showing Jesus as God. That He is uh, the ultimate authority over all things created, all things in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. He claims Himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, which is a role that only fits God. Let's take a look at uh, 1 Timothy that is not the right verse. Let, I'm not sure why I have the wrong verse there. I don't know. It was a great verse. Sorry, I didn't give it to you. Let's jump. Let's jump ahead. I, I've lost the reference. It, uh, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he refers to God as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We just talked about this recently during the Christmas season. Uh, if you find it, shout it out to me and we'll look it up together. Otherwise, we'll move on. Thank you very much. I missed a five in there. See, when you have a couple of surgeries, you've got time to look this stuff up. Good job. <laughs> 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. There we have it. If we back up uh, to the beginning of the sentence, it's in 13, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who, te who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in His own time. Here, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is alone immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, light whom no one has seen or can see, to Him be honor and might forever. Amen. So clearly, Paul is establishing here, which is not hard for us to understand, that the title of King, and, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the King above all kings, the one who rules the rulers, the master of all who have authority, is God. Period. Only God. There is nobody else. But then let's turn to the book of Revelation We'll see in Revelation chapter 17. This is in the middle of a, a great vision that the Lord is revealing to John. John who wrote the book of John, the letters of John, not John the Baptist, but John the beloved disciple, also known uh, to the church as John the Revelator because he writes these things. But notice in verse 14, in the midst of this, he receives this message or this vision. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. Because He is, this was just used about God alone, because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Turn the page to chapter 19. We see this repeated. 
as our Lord Jesus Christ appears. In verse 16, we read, On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, this identification, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King. He is sovereign. Now, when we see this, what does it mean to be sovereign? It means you have authority. He is the king. Note this. He is sovereign. Obey him. He is sovereign. Obey him. Obey the authority that comes along with the role of king. He is the majesty. He is the ruler above all rulers. All authority, as Jesus said at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the king over, above all kings. He is the great one. He is preeminent. He is superior. He is above in his title in his role in his authority therefore obey him now there are ways that god has given us to understand this there's a reason that god has designed all of creation to operate according to principles of submission and authority whether we're talking about galaxies held together by orbiting a particular uh, mass a particular ball of gas or we're talking about atoms with a nucleus and electrons that orbit this all of creation falls into these categories these principles of authority and submission when we watch the animal kingdom a pack or a herd will have an alpha and they don't have to sort it out with negotiations or contracts they don't wear a a c on their jersey everybody knows who the alpha is the alpha is the bad dude the alpha is the one in control we see this principle of authority and submission in our human relationships as well god built it in to the way he designed family now we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about family here but let's understand children should obey their parents. Say amen if you're a parent. Say amen if you're a child. That's a harder thing. All of us are children of somebody, right? All of us have been called to obey our parents. Now, what happens... I don't know, maybe this has never come up in my life as a parent. Maybe it's come up in yours. What happens when a child doesn't obey the parent? None of my children would ever fall into this category. So I need some help. What happens? There's punishment. Discipline, more specifically. Punishment with the intent to correct the behavior. Loving parents don't punish for the sake of rage and wrath. Loving parents punish for the sake of correction. Authority and submission. Whenever things get out of alignment with the proper authority and submission, everything falls apart. In the created order, we refer to this as the law of entropy, that all things are hurtling toward death, disorder, and decay. 
If something doesn't get introduced into the system, whatever system that is, it will break down and die. Solar systems, our bodies, our families. In a spiritual plane, we call that sin. When we are out of step with the right authority and submission, our submission to the king of all kings, then that disharmony, that disorder brings death and destruction. Everything, everything wrong with the world today is because of the same problem that you and I have as individuals. We've done our thing instead of God's thing. We're out of step with the reality of who is sovereign, who is in control, who is king. Jesus is our king. He is sovereign. Obey him. We see also that Jesus is our God. Jesus is our God. What does that mean? Well, let's first establish that he is our God. Turn back to Matthew. We were in chapter 2. Let's take a look at chapter 1. In chapter 1, we hear how Jesus was born, and we we see the story of Joseph brought up, and and Joseph was of the line of David. It turns out Mary is also of the line of David, so that Jesus, in both the legal reckoning and the physical side on his mother's side, comes from the royal line of David and keeps God's covenant promise with him that one would reign forever on his throne. And so as... uh, As we see this in verse 22 and 23, Matthew is very clear. Matthew is writing a royal picture of Christ. He's establishing Christ as king. Okay, Luke establishes Christ as a man. John establishes him as God. Mark establishes him as a servant. Matthew establishes him as king. And he is focused on the prophecies that identify him as such. But we see here more than that. More than just king, he is God. Read with me in verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is in Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. Which means, say it with me, God with us. That's not his name. That's who he is. That's his identity. His name is Yeshua. Jesus is the Greek form of that. Yeshua, Joshua, it's the same name, Jesus. That means God saves. And that's his actual proper name. Christ isn't his last name. That's his title. The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach. This Jesus is God with us. There are so many passages, as I mentioned, in, in Luke where Jesus refers to himself as God. Where he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. When he forgives sins, and even the Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can forgive sins. And the writer of the Gospel, Jesus himself, 
leave it hanging. They don't correct the misunderstanding. They don't say, well, come on, I, you know, I'm not God, but, you know. Every time we see someone fall down before a godly person in worship, that godly person, whether in the Old Testament or the New, says, oh, even angels, don't worship me. Worship God. I am not him. But when they fall down to worship Jesus, he doesn't stop them. Either they were right in crucifying him as a blasphemer, or he is God. This is a really important thing for us to recognize. Why? Because he is transcendent. He is transcendent. Therefore, we worship him. Wrestled with a lot of words to put in here to, to convey this message. I didn't have one better than transcendent. God is holy. We're not. He is other. He is beyond. He is superior. He is outside of what we know in our limited existence. He is transcendent. He's bigger. He's infinite. All of the attributes of God, of what it means to be deity, fall into this category of transcendent. It's bigger. It's beyond and whatever is beyond, God is beyonder. Whatever is bigger, God is biggerer. He is the biggest. He is so much more than we can possibly take in in our minds. Only God is worthy of worship. This is why in the book of Esther, when they want Mordecai to bow down to Haman, they want him to ascribe worthiness or to worship Haman is like, I bow to God, man. I bow to God. Nobody else. His life's on the line. I fear God. I don't fear anybody else. We worship the living God. Jesus Christ is the living God. Now, here are a couple of important things. If he's king and he has authority, then he gets to decide who is forgiven and who is condemned. Because he is the ruler. That's an important thing. However, if he is king and he gives mercy to those who do not deserve it, that's the nature of mercy, the psalmist tells us that people don't learn justice, they don't learn righteousness when sins go unpunished. Let that sink in for a second. God, who is righteous and is merciful, when he doesn't punish sin, isn't teaching us about righteousness. A king who does not punish wrongdoers, a ruler, a judge, a government, who does not hold wrongdoers accountable for their wrong, is unjust. Jesus can't be a just king if he overlooks our sin. The problem is, Romans 6.23 says, as we memorized a few weeks ago, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. This is a problem if we want to have this debt paid. But I have sinned. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned. Everybody has fallen short of God's holy standard, His glorious perfection. So I can't die for your sin I have to die for mine. You can't die for my sin. You have to die for yours. 
this presents a problem. God created this system of sacrifices in the Old Testament to show through His people Israel that sin always brings death. So the only way to be forgiven of sin was through the shedding of blood. There was a purpose in that. It wasn't just wanton slaughter. It was to give a picture of the hideous nature of sin. All sin, every sin, even the tiniest sin in our estimation is an affront to God and the sacrifice of a life goes with it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But that's not going to work forever, is it? A, a bull or a lamb or a pigeon, that can't, that can't take away my sin. Offering those sacrifices in faith allow God to postpone dealing with those. But there was a problem. He had to maintain his just standard to be a just judge and king. But he loved us, so the just standard means we have to die. As God, Jesus did not have a sin nature like you and I. He wasn't born because of Joseph's decision in going in to his wife. He was born because God miraculously by the Holy Spirit placed a child with a mother and no genetic father in the womb of this young girl so that he would have not our sinful nature in Adam but he would be God himself putting on flesh. Jesus lived and died as a man. He faced every temptation even as we do and yet was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. This is our final point. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. King and God and sacrifice. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. To the middle of the book and then just slightly to the right. If you're in Jeremiah, move a little to the left. If you're in Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, move a little to the right. We're going to find Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah, who has prophesied that Messiah would be a mighty God, a warrior king who would rule with an iron scepter in perfect justice, would put to death all evil, would destroy all imperfection, now describes that same Messiah, that same warrior king in different terms. We see this in the church. We recognize this as the passage of the suffering servant. This is a stumbling block for many who are expecting Messiah. But notice what he says. We'll pick up in verse 4. Speaking 700 years before Christ of the one who would come, he says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. 
By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the impurity, the iniquity of us all. In other words, all of our sin, everything that we deserve, laid on him. It's by the stripes on his back that we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, my, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He was our sacrifice. He stepped in and died in our place. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we deserved it. He didn't die for us when we cleaned up our act. It's because we couldn't that his death was necessary. The only thing you and I contribute to our salvation, it's not our choice, it's not our, our righteous deeds, it's not our will to try to clean up our act, it's not our, even our repentance. That's all part of it. We all have to have this repentance. But that's not what saves us. You can repent and be unregenerate. You can not be saved. The only thing you and I contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Jesus is our sacrifice, but here's the important thing for us to recognize. He is sufficient. Rest in Him. Jesus Christ, as the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, the payment for our sin, is sufficient. Rest in Him. Now, when we hear that word sufficient, you might think, well, it's adequate, it's okay. I, I saw in a commercial, okay is just, just okay is not okay, right? It's not that He's just an okay sacrifice. Oh, he's sufficient. He's okay. He's, he's five out of ten. He's not too bad. Passing a crowd. The idea of sufficiency in Christ is that He is complete perfect in his sacrifice he is everything that is needed there is no payment left for sin jesus died for your sin therefore you cannot offer anything to god you can't say lord i love you so much that i'm going to do this because i owe you i'm going to pay you back right 
We do owe, but there is no way we can pay back, ever. It's impossible. There is no part remaining. So when you get those doubts that say, you know, I've trusted in Jesus, I believe that he died for my sin, and I've given myself to him, I've, I, I, I thought I was born again, but why do I keep struggling? Listen, your struggles, your failures, do not undo the gift you didn't earn. How can you unearn what you didn't earn in the first place? However, being saved by faith alone does not come with faith alone. It's faith that works, faith that changes us, faith that changes our affections, our devotions. It changes our desires so that I don't want to sin anymore. Do I sin? Do you still sin? Really? Only, only half of you sin? Do you still sin? The question is, are you okay with that? When he changes us inside, I can't live with myself anymore. I can't sit here and continue to do the same things. To continue to have my anger just pour out. To continue to have the foulness come out of my mouth. To continue to lust and to do whatever lazy thing I want to do. To do my thing instead of God's thing. I can't live with that anymore when He's inside me. The Spirit changes my desires. So that when I sin, I think to myself in my heart of hearts, wretched man that I am. What's wrong with me? Praise be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. Not in any way because I'm good, but because He is perfect. He is sufficient. He is all the goodness I can ever need. That's the beauty of it. Turn to the book of Hebrews. All the way toward the back, not quite to Revelation. you got some skinny books between that and Revelation. If you really want to get a handle on this, read the entire book of Hebrews. Not right now, because we got stuff to do. But you want to read this. What this is doing in this book is connecting the dots for all those who are Jews, who are of Israel, who learned about the law, who got a picture of God in that partial revelation that we see in the Old Testament. And it's connecting the dots for them to say, here's what Moses taught as God gave you these things, but it's for instruction. Here's the reality come to fruition in Christ. Everything that was partial before is complete in Him. He is sufficient. There's no sacrifice left. Turn to, Romans, or to Hebrews 7. Starting with verse 1. There's a comparison being made between Jesus and Melchizedek. Melchizedek's an Old Testament character that we're going to see in the, right, in the reading here. The sentence right into this is the pickup note to this measure. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 1 of chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. King of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, he shows up, there's no backstory, he disappears, and there's nothing else. 
Many say that this was not an actual regular human dude, but it was a theophany or a Christophany. This was a pre-incarnate Old Testament appearance of Christ himself in the person of Melchizedek. I don't know whether I could go that far, but I sure wouldn't debate it. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, Israel. Even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. So they're part of Abraham. They give this tithe to the, to the temple or to the tabernacle through the priests as an act of worship to God. Verse 6. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him. Let me, let me change the emphasis on that syllable. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, just in case I didn't make it clear. Levi was the priestly line. All the priests of Israel came from Levi. He, he wasn't from them, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. Better emphasis? And blessed him who had the promises. Abraham was the one to do the blessing. God promised that all nations would be blessed through him. But yet this man is blessing Abraham. Verse 7, without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Don't miss that. Without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid, in, pay, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Hadn't been born yet. Generations to come. It starts to get a little fiery up in here. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the law was given to the people. That's the book of Leviticus that we read. Why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Hmm. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became priests with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus would refer to this later as a new covenant written in His blood. 
Jump ahead to chapter 10. Verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. They would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, quoting the Psalms here, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First He said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then He said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Last scripture we're going to look at, Romans chapter 8. Therefore, verse 1. Therefore, he's looking back at everything that he's said leading up to this in the first seven chapters. He's actually talking about the same things that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Because of our sin that was paid for in Christ, because He was the sacrifice that paid for us once for all, completely sufficient. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. He is the sacrifice. And so he condemned, in sin, he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the, spirit, to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. God remains just because God, the King, the Judge Himself, put Himself on the altar put Himself on the cross. He died to pay every bit of our penalty for sin. Therefore, we can rest in Him. So often we've tried to make the Christian life about striving and trying to get right and trying to look good and trying to keep up appearances and trying to, to cross every, every little thing off of our list. It's not about lists. Sorry, Aaron. Sorry, Heidi. It's not about lists. Lists can be helpful in making sure that we do things. But if we're stressing over trying to please God, we're not pleasing God. God wants us to rest in Jesus. 
when he finished his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, according to Hebrews. Which means, as it meant for the Hebrew priests in the tabernacle, they could not sit down until the job was done. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, it meant there is nothing left to do. There's no part of you that is good enough to contribute to your salvation, and yet he gives it to you anyway based on the merits of Christ and Christ alone. So you can rest. You don't have to fret. Oh, am I, am I blowing it too bad? Am I, what am I doing? Is my sin going to keep God from doing what God's doing? Man, it's about God. It ain't about you. He became the perfect, complete, sufficient sacrifice. And therefore, he is able to save completely, one translation says, to the uttermost, all those who are being made holy in him, who are being set apart for him. This is the crucial element of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners and was raised to life. If you believe this in your heart, and you believe this enough to wear it on your sleeve, that's what Paul means when he says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so that you are surrendered to Him, living for Him, recognizing that He died for you. The Bible says you are saved. Jesus used the term born again, reborn, starting over. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation the old is gone, wiped out by the sacrifice of Christ. Completely obliterated, he is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, appeasing God's wrath. There is no punishment, no wrath left for anyone who is in Christ. Every ounce of your punishment and mine fell on Christ. So now, whatever feels like punishment is the discipline of a loving father steering us back to where we belong. It's not, I blew it, therefore my team's going to lose today. It's not, I blew it, therefore God's mad at me, and I have to suffer, I have to purge this, I have to do my penance, I have to spend time in purgatory. None of that. That's not scriptural. All of it fell on Christ. There is nothing that remains. Embrace it. And you can rest in Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You have given us Your Son. How could we possibly think that You would withhold from us any good thing? How could we ever doubt Your love for us seeing this great sacrifice? <coughs> Father, in the coming moments, as we celebrate this gift and we remember the cost, Help us not to crucify Jesus all over again by trying to do it ourselves, but to simply live by the Spirit that you have placed in us as those who have trusted Christ for our everything. We pray this in Jesus' name.